Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. We're very lucky to have with us Marie Eisma. Hello, Marie. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? I'm pretty good, pretty good. So I thought we'd talk today about school refusal. Yes. Um, and you know, you've got a lot of expertise in this area of practice. So what is school refusal? So well, generally we're seeing school refusal as being um, connected with anxiety. Um, usually resulting in an avoidance of students wanting to attend school for a whole range of reasons. Mm, yeah. So it's that lack of attendance at school. But of course, it's not, it doesn't just happen overnight. You, it's quite common to have a, a progression from school reluctance yes. through to school refusal. So what, what, what does school reluctance look like? What's the progression look like? Yeah, so school reluctance is where we usually start seeing students um, you know, complaining of belly aches, um, you know, uh, butterflies in the tummy. Uh, you might start seeing students requesting to go to the sick bay more than, um, you know, increased in frequency of, you know, needing to get out of class because of having nausea or all these other sort of often somatic complaints. Um, and we often start to then see where, you know, there's just a lack of even, you know, commenting about enjoying school. Everything feels like it's a, a drag. And usually in retrospect, um, we'll find that the school reluctance period has gone on and there's been comments like that to, you know, the, the students been voicing these um, just lack of motivation and a whole these other symptoms. Uh, and then they realise that, yeah, all of a sudden it becomes school, you know, for school reluctance and then they just basically don't go and they completely, yeah, it's become school refusal. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can remember once telling a parent, well, just take your child to school. Mm. You know, I, I, I could not comprehend that a child could have such power yeah. over parents. Mm. And I can also remember telling parents when they came to me and said, oh, my child won't take the antibiotics that you prescribed them. I said, well, just make them take it. Mm. You know, it, it, it's, it's taken me a long time, unfortunately, for the sake of my patients, it's taken me a long time to realize that you cannot really make kids attend school you can encourage them you can you can provide reward you can provide punishments but you can't actually make your kids attend school um so yeah you're right you you can't actually um you know just like we can't pin someone down and make them have medications their antibiotics we can't drag kids out of the school and literally drag them across the asphalt and and literally throw them in the school door it you, you can't do it so it's all about understanding the psychology of the situation, really. And, and I say the psychology of the situation because we have to understand the context. And I know you've got views on context, but for me, it's all about primary gain, secondary gain, and sometimes even tertiary gain. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if we talk a little bit about primary gain and the sick role, sometimes children like the sick role, because they get attention, they get that positive validation of 
being the center of attention and enjoying the benefits of it. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I see this in a fair bit of my work, perhaps where a child or a student, sorry, um, has got very, very busy caregivers or parents uh, who might be doing, you know, long, long, long hours. And then all of a sudden the child gets or the student gets sick. And for the first time in perhaps a long time, there's mum or dad present or the caregiver present. And it can feel like, oh, I'm seen. I'm, I'm actually witnessed by the eyes of the parent. And for a child who may have otherwise felt um, ignored or, you know, uh, other things taking priority, it's understandable that a, a child might actually really appreciate that. And they, there's an example of where that can become an unintended reinforcer uh, because for the first time mm. the child's getting the attention and connection with parents that the child may not ordinarily be getting. Yeah. And then we have the concept of secondary gain. So the child assumes a sick role for a secondary benefit. So, for instance, it could be to avoid a stress, which could include bullying. So, mm. you know, perfectly reasonable the desire to avoid a stress. So it could, could, could be the desire to avoid bullying. It could be the desire to avoid a test. Yes. Or it could be the desire to avoid merely overstimulation. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack in that point, isn't there? Mm. And that's actually quite right. There's, you know, there's the avoidance of not wanting to look unintelligent. So for some mm. students, you know, if there's going to be, you know, NAPLAN is a classic, um, students not wanting to turn up because they have to, you know, undergo tests or performance or public speaking or something like that. Um, so, yeah, there's many examples. Um, and, and for some students, it's overstimulation. They don't know what to do with the, the too much noise coming in from all directions. They don't have the coping skills to cope with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then sometimes we have, quite rare, I suppose, but there is the possibility of what I would call tertiary gain when when for some reason there's actually some kind of gain in the part of a third party, and that third party could be the caregiver. Mm, yes. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, I've seen this play out where, say, parents might not be together and the child, mm. um, you know, it can, it, can sue, it can play a part for the parent to perhaps mm. um, get a bit of extra time, get some brownie points with the child, um, you know, sometimes it can be, um, you know, another way of getting at the other parent. Uh, sometimes we see the undermining between parents. You know, one person has a concerted effort about making sure the child goes to school. Um, but if there's a lot mm -hmm. of um, parental conflict, then the other parent might undermine. Um, other examples could be, yeah, where in, you know, some extreme cases where the parent uh, derives a benefit in the child staying home to look after them and attend to yes. their yes. psychological uh, supports. Yes. So there, you know, there are multi-levels and multi-tiers of the psychological context that, that, that one needs to understand when one is approaching this problem of school refusal. Mm. And I think going back to uh, primary gain, I think it's really important to tease out what we mean when we talk about somatization. Mm. Because somatization is really the core of primary gain. Now, can you explain to us what that means in your context? Yeah, so the somatization is that, you know, for a child, when they start getting the, the belly upset or they, you know, they're racing to the bathroom or they're feeling like they're going to be sick, it is very real for them. 
Um, mm. And I've often, when I'm trying to do some education with parents and even with teachers, I will give them the example of like a, you know, imagine if you're at a park and a ferocious dog uh, comes bolting at you off lead and the, the, the sense of anxiety and surging of all of those stress chemicals running through your body. Well, we, we kind of understand that might happen when a, a dog comes charging at somebody and we don't know, especially if its teeth are showing. But yet for a yeah. student or a child at school, that's exactly what the, the level of their distress can feel like. So well-meaning people can say, oh, look, you know, um, you know you, you're letting your thoughts run away from you. Um, it's not really that bad. But yet if that's the physical sensation that is occurring for a student or a child, it's real for them. Yeah. And for me, the issue about somatic uh, somatization, and I suppose in particular what we call somatic symptom disorder, that's a really, really difficult diagnostic dilemma to tease out because, you know, you, you, you see a kid with bellyache. Mm. They, they've missed school they've, and then the mother drags or the granny usually drags them to the surgery and, you know, you fix my child, he's got bellyache. And you're looking at the child and you're feeling the belly and you think, oh, is it or isn't it? I once, <laughs> I, I once looked after a child she was 12 years old and she had recurrent abdominal pain and we all thought it was appendix and we kept sending her in query appendix, query appendix, query appendix. And eventually, you know, the surgeon said, stop sending her in. There's, there's nothing wrong with her appendix. We're not taking it out. Mm. And then we started going down the counseling route and there's the mother and the child were, were looking at us as we were trying to explore you know anxiety issues and psychology issues and they're looking at us as if we were mad but you know mm. the, you know the mother said look just you know play along because you know even the mother acknowledged that there had been frequent recurrent abdominal pain episodes but with no diagnosis mm. so i i'll never forget you know the, 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 we i talked to this child about visualization you know talking about you know the, the happy place that she was in <laughs> and the very next day i got a report back from the tests that we had just arranged because it was a new fancy test and that test proved that she had chronic rumbling appendicitis <laughs> two days later she had it out and never saw me again <laughs> you know exactly so it's, it's from, a, from a clinician's point of view it's very difficult mm. To, to tease out what's going on sometimes. It's important to make that distinction between a, a organic pathology and somatization disorder. Very much so. But it doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't necessarily figure first and foremost on, on, on minds. But the, the risks of not dealing with somatoform disorder include over-investigation of pathology and also... The, something like the, you know the, the higher false negative rate of appendectomies you know so the, the, when you take an appendix out you know you're assuming it's inflamed but when you look at it in the microscope it's not inflamed yes. you know, so that the rate of the rate of negative appendicitis for people who have undergone the surgery to actually remove the appendix is very high mm. in somatoform disorder yeah so yeah i mean what, what do you think about that diagnostic dilemma well, I mean, and, and yeah, it's it's one of those ones that, you know, as certainly when I work in schools, I certainly don't want to be making any, you know, any, you know, I'm, I'm straight off the hand it back to the doctors because it could be a false, you know, yeah. and I'd hate to sit there and think somebody's yeah. appendix actually does rupture um, all the while. Yeah. But yeah, I think yeah. it's important to kind of really track, get a really good history of when do these symptoms start? Was anything else going on? Mm. And I think when we really yeah. do a do a really good um, thorough 
understanding and obviously collateral information, not always relying on the on the student. I mean, yeah, obviously their their um their contributions important, but you know sometimes when we even get back and start speaking to teachers at the school or speaking to well being um the well being team at school, we start to realise that the picture's a little bit a bit more than just all of a sudden onset of you know, problems. You know, there's usually been a lead yeah. up, e.g., bullying or something else has happened. Yeah, yeah. And another another category of, of student that, that I worry about are those who are labelled as the troublemakers, you know, yeah. because they have they may present as needing as or as having special needs. So for instance, people with central auditory processing disorders, or people yes. with uh, you know, ADHD or people with, you know, um, what used to be known as the yuppie flu, but, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, mm. you know, this happens in, the, in, the, in teenage years. All of these diagnoses are valid diagnoses, and yet, you know, it's sometimes, and I have seen this, that sometimes children can be punished for, for that suffering, and they're not, their suffering is not actually validated by by if not you know there's teachers and certain possibly also by their parents and that can create friction so when you're having to say to a, a school look you know this child has got special needs do something about it accommodate this need mm. that can be an issue mm, yeah for sure and i mean like even at the um the monash hospital like there's a specific um team that actually works um educating people in the community teachers and families and doctors like even for students who have chronic fatigue and things like that so um, you know there is education out there because physical illness can be a very good reason why, why students do end up not attending school I know students that have had you know untreated um, seizures and they've yeah. become you know yeah. Um, yeah I mean I used to have chronic asthma as a child and there was a really big thing about not going to school because People, you know, for the even, I mean, I'm happy to share this because the medication back at that time used to have to be um, administered into a syringe to get the right dose combined. People would like, oh no, she's having to be injected. Um, so, you know, you can, there's a lot of medical reasons why people don't go to school um, and it's very legitimate. Yeah. And then, of course, we know that. There's another group of conditions where we know that stress does play a role in triggering that condition, like for a classic being migraine. Mm. We know that, you know, people get migraines just thinking about the, the a potential forthcoming stress. And, you know, migraine is by no means a factitious or somatoform disorder. You know, it's, it's a very real disorder. Um, yes. So I suppose... You know, we, 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 when we're talking about, you know, school refusal, we're talking about, you know, all of the gains and we, we're, then we're discussing, you know, what what uh, somatoform uh, disorders are. And then we're talking about disorders that actually do cause, uh, you know, or, or cause functional impairment at the point where there is no possibility of school attendance. Mm. So there's a huge range of issues to, to consider. But in terms of your expertise as a psychologist, what do you do? Yeah, I, I'm a GP, and, I, and I've decided that um, this kid may have a school refusal problem. My heart, you know, goes out to the parents, and then my next thought is, well, <laughs> where to next? And thankfully, you're here. Okay, so the sort of things that we're often looking for is uh, tracking the story in regards to when did it all start to become a, you know, when did we start to see the reluctance become refusal? So if a student, um, you know, we know that the, risk, we, the the consequences of not getting on top of this 
is that with continual school refusal, we've got the, the challenges of the student falling behind academically. They can't keep up with their peers. Um, if they were worried about attending um, school because of, you know, if, if they were worried about sitting tests or having to read in class and feeling that they're going to be judged negatively or anything like that, then the more that the student then avoids school, the more some of those concerns end up intensifying because then the students at home are creating lots of stories that may or may not happen in their mind. There's no, there's no what we call exposure. Um, and the other thing that can happen is the, the fracturing of the social connections. So the students can then become very fearful that they're forgotten, they're forgotten by their peers, that uh, their, their peer networks have all made these new clicks and then all of a sudden they're on, on the outer. Um, so the more they're at home, the less um, exposure getting and the more that they're going to be able to you know, create more and more um, what ifs, which we know actually fuel the anxiety. So those are the dangers really of not treating. But actually, what does treatment involve? What do you actually do apart from understanding that the context? What's the therapeutic principle in this yes yeah, so is it graded exposure it is yeah so we're we, you know for a student who's actually fearful of going to school as far as they're concerned they're in their danger zone they've actually hit their danger mm. zone just merely at the prospect of going to school and what we need to do is work out um, to get into what we refer to as the stretch zone and the stretch is where we take somebody out of their zone of comfort in ways that are likely to have some sort of success so Ironically, what we know tends to work is that we don't encourage students to start their first day back on a Monday. For some reason, the idea or the prospect of um, starting at that day, the, the week feels too long. So we might look at, uh, first of all, establishing a sleep routine that's back to normal. Uh, one of the things that's a big trigger is when students start going to sleep late and then sleeping in very late in the morning and then they've missed their, you know, they, they've miss the boat to get to school. So we try to make sure that their sleep pattern is back to some sort of, you know, normality. Um, and then we might work out what does the student need? Do they need to walk around the school in, like you said, in a graded, in a graded way? Uh, do we, we let them walk around the school ground on a day where students may not be there? Do we bring them in and just let them sit in a certain space? Do we get them in on the subjects that they actually like where there is no social, um, maybe where there's no academic uh, you know, stressors where they're not going to be feeling that they're less than. So there's a whole lot of things that we look at so that we can try to get some wins on the page for students. Yeah. And it's not just about getting the parents and the child and the GP and the therapist in that space. The, the, the school and the staff at the school also have to play a role in it, don't they? We That's exactly. We have to make sure that everyone is on the same page um, and that mm you know, there's no undermining or unintentionally undermining uh, any of the, the, you know, significant people involved in the, in the treating process. All right. Well, Marie, thank you so much for your expertise. I look forward to speaking to you again very soon, but uh, bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thanks for watching MedHeads and we'll see you next time.